Welcome to Justice Visions, the podcast about everything that is new in the domain of transitional justice. Justice Visions is hosted at the Human Rights Center of Ghent University. For more information, visit justicevisions.org. Hello, Artino. It's wonderful to talk to you again for our monthly chat on justice efforts for Syrians. Hi, Brigitte. Yes, it's great to have the opportunity to look into justice efforts for Syrians again. While you have been quite active within that domain these last weeks, I just admired you in the documentary Syria, the Poisonous War, which was broadcasted last month by the VRT, the Flemish television company. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, uh, it's really important to talk about these attacks, which has a huge tragic impact on the Syrian civilians, victims and their families. And unfortunately, these victims and their families are just still waiting for justice. Yes, and it's key that this knowledge is spread, that public audiences continue to be confronted to the reality of these crimes and to the chemical weapons attacks and other crimes, and that the disinformation campaign by Assad propagandists is debunked. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we as Syrian activists, we continue to document these crimes and to show the reality of the Assad's regime war. But today we're looking into another aspect of the regime war, imprisonment. You wanted to to talk about this subject before moving on to our episode on victims' activism next month, right? Yes, I did, as the Syrian prison system is a central element of the Assad's regime system of governance, which is intent on breaking political subjects. As political dissident and former prisoner Yassin al-Hajj Saleh argues, the political prisoner is the rule in Syria and not quite the exception. And there's a very interesting new book, The Syrian Gulag, Assad's Prisons 1970-2020, that sheds a light on that system. And I thought it was important to highlight that publication here. And of course, the title refers to the forced labor camps that existed in the Soviet Union and that also served as instruments of political repression. And secondly, I also wanted to zoom in on the production of Syrian prison narratives, linking back to our previous episode on truth-seeking, as it's really important to talk about the potential of artistic expressions against the background of justice efforts, in my opinion. And on that issue of prison narratives, I spoke to the literary scholar Anne-Marie McManus. You spoke uh, to the authors of the Syrian Gulag, Ur Omet Ungur, a scholar of genocide and mass violence at the University of Amsterdam and in IOD, and Jaber Bakir, uh, a Syrian researcher, journalist, novelist who is specialized in the prison system. Good morning, Ur and Jaber. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast and uh, also to have you shortly after the release of your book, The Syrian Prison Gulag. Um, The idea is that you um, discuss the book with us and also that you give your perspectives on on the Syrian Gulag more generally. Before delving into the content of the book, I would like to ask you how you went about writing it. And um, I'll start with you, Ur. Why did you write the book and how did you go about writing it? Doing this specific book emerged when Jaber actually presented his other book, Al-Muhakima Al-Ilahiyya, The Divine Trial, which is on Hospital 601. And he had a presentation and discussion of that book at the Goethe Institute in Amsterdam. Then we met up somewhere else for coffee and we started talking. And then the idea was, or the question was, why is there no overview book of the Syrian prison system? 
It is a massively important political factor in the Middle East in general, in Syria, of course, in particular. And yet there's no book that gives a more or less, you know, um, synoptic overview of these prisons. So then, you know, these discussions continued and we decided simply to make the book ourselves. Wow, that's very ambitious and very much needed as well. Jaber, could you give some um, more details on the writing of the book? You had this plan, you decided to write it, but it's massive. How did you start doing this research project and how did you divide the roles also? Yeah, actually after that time, what we tried to make a plan, how we can start with this huge number of prisons in Syria and uh, intelligence service, branches, etc. So for that, we choose the 70 until 2020, this 50 years for the Assad uh, time in Syria. In my work in this book is um, divided into two parts, research and writing in, in Arabic, because we, tr we, we, we made everything in Arabic, then we translated to English. It's a long process. And the research, the work was uh, distributed on preparing interview questions. To, to help us to understand the, the system, to understand the life inside the prison, to understand how it uh, work this place. After uh, completing the interviews, I'm talking about uh, 100 interviews in this, in this case. Then I analyzed the Syrian prison literature, it's extracted from it all the uh, useful uh, details, or at minimum, the environment of, for example, Balmera prison, uh, and Meza prison, each narration according to the place uh, it's taken about. The third stage of that, analyzing the, the human rights report and uh, the security studies that deal it uh, with the Syrian intelligence and the prison, uh, and extracting um, uh, all the useful information and the de de uh, details uh, from them, including the biography for different names that you learn it from the Syrian Golag, for example, Ali Duba, uh, Muhammad Al-Khouli, etc. The fourth stage, the writing and um, putting all the of the above in the context of answering the hypothesis that the prison in Syria has existed on the horizontal and vertical level in society and in the state. Uh, and we continue to, to translate it in English and then we make the second and third draft, fourth draft until to make the Dutch one. Yes, the Dutch version is uh, just published and we're very excited about it. And um, I'm sure that the international readers will also be very excited when the English translation is published shortly. I would like to maybe pick up on the idea of the horizontal and the vertical level and go back to you, Ur, to talk about the system in general. I know it's vast and we don't have the scope to enter very much into the details, but could you maybe just disentangle this idea of the verticality and the horizontality of the prison system? Yeah, so one of the major conclusions, of course, in this book is that uh, this prison system is four-dimensional. There are four separate uh, entities. There are the, uh, the intelligence agencies' prisons, there are the central prisons, the uh, civil prisons, and the secret prisons. I mean, that in itself is an important conclusion. Then, um, it's not only the case that these four dimensions, they uh, exist separately, but they're uh, entwined in really intricate ways, in complex ways, that we haven't even really fully understood, to be honest, in this book, uh, because it re requires a much more thorough 
and I can also micro focus actually on uh, what happens when somebody enters the system, goes through it like a pinball machine. Um, but one of the things we did find out, and this is the second, uh, I think, conclusion, is that the, the intelligence uh, agency's system of the four different intelligence agencies, they are like a vacuum cleaner. They clean from the society, they enter, penetrate into Syrian society and extract people from it. Uh, they then process them, to use a factory term, they process these human beings by subjecting them to violent treatment and to torture and to forms of interrogation, uh, keep them in these prisons for a while. Um, but then in the end, always, people invariably, either they go, for example, to a, uh, to a civil prison and then they're released, uh, or they go to the central prisons, such as, um, well, Palmyra was one of them, of course, in the 1980s, uh, but also Sidnaya, most importantly, uh, that is a major fork in the road. The moment that you're sent to these, then you're in a really different universe. And you can stay there for a uh, countless number of years. You don't know why. And in the end, you can potentially still be released through the civil system. Uh, so there's a vacuuming, there's a processing, there's the storing, let's say, uh, in the major prisons, and then there's release. Uh, and this process is, um, it is highly intricate. You used the term the Syrian Gulag, and of course the Gulag refers to to other systems, countries. Uh, Jaber, could you maybe elaborate on the use of that term, and also what what it evokes for you yourself, also as an ex-detainee and currently as a researcher on detention? Yeah, actually, as a Syrian, I consider the Syrian Gulag. I think it's a savage archipelago uh, that kills innocent people on a daily basis all the time it's work and still work until now we speak now in this in this interview and the people die in the, in the Sidnaya and the, the the Syrian uh, intelligence branches it's a very complex system at the, the administrative level and control uh, it's not a tool for reforming prisoner we speak about the, 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 the prisoner of freedom of expression, not as a criminal, uh, criminal prisoner. Um, the Syrian Golag is designed to be an effective killing unit without unlimited powers. That's what means for me as a, as a man, as a Syrian man, as a Syrian ex-prisoner, and as a researcher and writer for this book. Mm-hmm. And you also insist very much, uh, on the industrial complex, the industrial complex lying underneath the prison system. You already mentioned the issue of vacuuming. Can you also maybe elaborate a bit on, on how you perceive that industrial aspect and why it is so key also? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the re- reasons uh, the, the Gulag metaphor or the concept applies so well is because of the scale uh, of this prison system. Huh? So. Um, we're dealing here both uh, statistically, uh, but also uh, qualitatively, with an impact on the society that is way beyond uh, any other prison system, right? So take a neighboring country like Jordan or Turkey. There are prisons in Turkey, yeah, some of them are bad, also historically bad, but the uh, it doesn't have in Turkey the disproportionate impact that it has in Syria. Syria in Syria, this is, uh, as Jabir once said, it, it is a, the regime is a Nizam Sijanid, which means it's an imprisonment regime. Uh, it, imprisonment, in fact, defines the regime. 
because um, the industrial impact is also with the perpetrators. Imagine the tens of thousands of men that wake up every day. They, uh, you know, they wash their faces. They uh, they have breakfast. They kiss their children, and they go to work. And the only thing they do during the day is they contribute to a system of imprisonment where they have to uh, discipline, torture, uh, arrest, prosecute, also the entire legal prosecutorial facade of it. Uh, there, uh, this is a branch of government that is massive with inside the Syrian state or, or the Assad regime, uh, if you wish. Uh, and really the best exemplification of the industrial scale of it is, I mean, most of us have, have seen the Caesar photos, uh, the photos of the, uh, the torture to death victims uh, from the uh, pr- prisons in, uh, in, in uh, of the, the branches, but also the Hospital 601. But one of the photos, uh, what, what for me was the really the most shocking, which is uh, it, it's a garage in Hangar in which there are dozens of, maybe hundreds of bodies, they're packaged in plastic, and then there are three perpetrators in military clothes walking around carrying the dead bodies from one side to the other. And that really encapsulated the industrial nature of it. For these people processing these packages, well, I'm using the jargon now of the perpetrator, processing these packages is just work. Uh, it's assembly line. And that also means that the perpetrators don't really care who the victims are. They just have to be processed on this massive scale. Um, it is depersonalized. And that's what makes it so, so industrial. Jabir, to end, I would like to ask you about the impact on Syrian society. We know it is huge because there's over 100,000 people forcibly disappeared and missing. There's so many people detained that not one family in Syria is not directly affected by this issue. But could you expand on the impact on a societal level and new insights that you have gathered during this research project? There's a story about the empty empty chair that we, we covered our book the empty chair it's not about the just the the, the person who missing the person who uh, came back from the, the Syrian gulag came back from this uh, horrible uh, experience he didn't find empty chair for himself in his house in his family because his family they bury him or her because they thought all the time he he died or she died it's not easy to, 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 to recover or return, relive again from the death and try to be uh, a normal guy. So it's, it's, it's really something we, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't even think about it. How the Syrian people can be a normal people after this huge and terrifying experience. There are there are hundreds of missing persons in, in, in the darkness of this gulag. No one know anything about them. This this breaks up family. Arrest all the time. My friend asked me about the arrest time when when you when that the Muhabarat arrested you on the, the street or in your house. Arrest meaning economic be, be, bleeding for for parents who are forced to pay thousands of dollars to find out where their children are, unfortunately without good results. The Gulag destroys society, not only at the the political level, but also breaks up relations, families, increasing number of savage perpetrators. So in this book, we try to, to understand the system 
because I'm, I'm, I'm my, my basic and, and my study, I'm a mechanic, to try find which kind of of this mission we can stop it. You take it off, and this is mission stop. Oh, it's good. That's what. That's actually my dream in the, in the end. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think you're also contributing to that by by also expanding that knowledge and deepening that knowledge on the Syrian Gulag. And with our next guest, Anne-Marie McManus, we will also discuss a very important aspect of the knowledge, the cultural knowledge that um, we obtained also through prison narratives and prison literature. And as a favor, I would like to ask you um, to read a poem that's also in the book by Faraj Baraikdar. Sure, sure. It's name story. كان يا مكان حدثني زمن ابن زمان the cell is no narrower than his grave, that the cell is no shorter than his life. This, if the earth accepts his corpse, enclosed by footsteps and protected by forgetfulness. April, Palestinian branch in 87, last century. Faraj Berkdar. Thank you both, Ur and Jabir, for um, the interview, for writing the book and for... Um, your relentless efforts in um, excavating that knowledge, making it public, and also contributing, I think, to the, the stamina and the efforts of so many people who are still detained and people who are just fighting for justice in Syria. Thank you both. Thank you, Bishi. Thanks for you. That was so impressive. Uh, it's the first time I, I have heard such a clear-to-the-point introduction about Assad prison system. Even if it's not too unfamiliar to us as Syrians, to be honest. Yeah, it's really an outstanding publication because it shows how the prison lies at the heart of the polity in Syria, not only affecting the prisoners themselves, but the whole society. And what's also important about this book is that it goes against the denialism of the Assad regime and its backers. Yes, exactly. I mean, it expands the knowledge about the regime killing machine. Academic publications are also literature, prevent the erasure of these crimes and contribute to resistance. On this issue, we also spoke to Anne-Marie McMinus. She's a literary scholar who leads uh, the ERC research project SyriaSAP on Syria's present narrative. So if we can listen to that conversation, please. Hello, Anne-Marie. Lovely to have you for our podcast on the Syria prison narratives and the Syrian prison gulag more generally, to uh, also have you as a guest, uh, because we're very eager to hear more about your project firstly, and also about Syrian prison narratives in particular. Maybe I'll just ask you first about your project, Cyrus, um, Prison Narratives of Assad Syria, which you are uh, leading in, in Berlin, in Germany. Can you tell us a bit more about the project? Yes, thank you so much for, um, for asking me to be part of this conversation. I'm really glad to be here. Um, so CIRASP stands for the Prison Narratives of Assad Syria. It's a five-year research project on Syrian prison narratives. 
Um, the work has really gone un- undergone some changes in the past two years. I planned it back in 2018, and at that time, I was still living in the United States. Back then, I had imagined that I would gather interviews with former prisoners and read that alongside prison literature because I really wanted to widen the concept of what we consider prison narrative to be. So including but expanding beyond things like memoirs, poetry and novels to include film, social media engagements with prison narratives, as well as ordinary speech in interviews. And um, I wanted to do that because, well, first, I really wanted to capture a plurality of Syrian voices Um, For example, a a few Syrian women who have written prison literature, but the genre does tend to be um, dominated by male secular intellectuals. And one of the things we know about what's happened since 2011, but even before, is that many different classes, both genders, people with varying engagements, even non-engagements with politics, have been caught up in the prison system. Um, so I wanted to make space for that. And second, um, one of the other big outcomes of 2011 was uh, democratization of cultural production. So in the up, well, in the revolution, there was a real widening um, in who was able to produce cultural narratives. And so I wanted my research to reflect that democratization. But once I arrived in Berlin, I was really amazed to discover there were so many projects going on to interview former prisoners already underway, not just in Germany, but within the EU more broadly. Um, And so Sirask now collaborates with one of those, which is led by the Syrian activist and writer Jabir Bakir, who I believe is also on this program. Um, But it was also through observing these kinds of interviewing initiatives that I came to see this kind of research, right, documenting and archiving prison narratives is actually a key activity in the prison field, right? It's something that I would place alongside the production of narratives and knowledge about detention in Syria. Yeah, it's uh, so interesting because often when we think of Syrian prison narratives, we restrict it to prison literature, or at least I did in the past, because that's, of course, a genre that is more known. So it's very interesting that you're broadening that that definition, let's say, to prison narratives. So you already touched upon cinema. How would you define it more broadly, the field of Syrian prison narratives? Mm, yeah, well, one thing you you just said, it's, it's definitely a multi-genre field, right? It comprises a lot of different activities. These include literary writing, whether it's self-published or uh, published through a traditional publishing house. There's filmmaking, theater, poetry, activism and advocacy I definitely see as part of this field that is overlapping often with these cultural and artistic endeavors. Um, The arts, right, especially public installations, um, and then research on prison. Those are the main genres that come to mind. Um, I think it's also important to say this field is multi-generational. So it includes people who were arrested in the 1980s, Um, as well as people who are usually of a younger generation, but not always, uh, who were arrested after 2011 or whose family members or loved ones were disappeared. And so it's interesting to me that some of the 1980s generation of former detainees have been active for years in writing and producing thought on imprisonment in Syria. But others wrote for the first time after 2011, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting historical phenomenon. Um... 
And then I just, yeah. uh, when I say things, I just want to be clear that when I say the prison field, I should really be clear that um, this is a term I'm bringing, right? To the, to mm-hmm. the, it's, I wouldn't say that there's a sort of self definition, right? Or unification of the field, right? People mm-hmm. who are participating in this work are definitely aware of one another, um, but it doesn't have a sort of a central institution or a single leader. Um, And there's also a lot of diversity, right? And even some disagreement about how people should write about or talk about prison. What is the best way to advocate for this cause? And to me, this comes from the diversity of the field, um, but also the immense urgency of the prison Mm -hmm. cause, right? And And the cause of forced disappearance in Syria. Yeah, definitely. And it's so innovative how you foreground the issue of the field, And what's also innovative in your approach is the way how you classify prison narratives. Could you briefly elaborate on the different functions of prison narratives? Yeah, sure. So um, I was, I've been, this is a sort of a working paradigm thinking through what prison narratives do. And so I was thinking about the different verbs. One is knowing, right, knowing about human rights violations and disappearance, remembering and feeling. And so something like documentation most obviously relates to memory, right? Um, and what it means to remember this. But it's also part of sort of ongoing forms of political contestation around imprisonment in Syria. And I'll come to that in a second. Um, One thing that I am trying to name is something that's an indexical engagement with prison narrative, um, which I think is really important and valuable in the human rights field, where the literature or narratives, it's usually published literature, though, of former prisoners is a form of evidence of the existence of human rights violations. And a very famous case of this in the Syrian context is the poet Faraj Bayraktar, whose poetry was smuggled out of Syria in the 1990s while he was he was at that time in prison. Yeah, we asked Jabir, by the way, to read uh, a poem. Oh, how wonderful. That's really wonderful. And so this poetry, right, it was, a, well, there was an international campaign, but it was really his poetry that sort of was at the, um, sort of the forefront of the campaign that eventually led to his release. Um, and I find this a really interesting and influential um, function for prison literature because it actually doesn't really rely on what Bayraktar's poem says, right? It's something that you don't necessarily need to read in order to understand the power of this text as it's circulating in the world and drawing attention to the plight, not just of the poet, but to many others like him. So I think this is really valuable, but in the present, one of the things I have a concern about is if we if we just assume we already know right what prison narratives say, and if we already we assume we already know what their meaning is, well we don't read them or listen to them, and then there might not be a chance for Syrian writers, filmmakers, activists to actually transform their narratives, right? To really get their voices out to the world. Because I think actually one of the major goals of the prison field today is to articulate a new meaning or set of meanings around imprisonment and forced disappearance. And it's um, you can hear this in the statements of activists like Wafa Mustafa and Fadwa Mahmoud, who are women activists who are super prominent um, in act- advocacy for forced dis- well, around forced disappearance through the organization Family Families for Freedom. Mm-hmm. And for them, this advocacy is really a continuation of the revolutionary practices that began in 2011. And I think that this statement, right, this understanding of what it means to narrate 
disappearance to narrate incarceration can actually be applied to the prison field today as a whole, mm -hmm. right? And it stands against dictatorship and its demands for justice and also in the effort to create new narratives about the self, politics and memory in Syria. Mm -hmm. It's amazing and it's so rich. And maybe as a last question, I would just like to ask you to very briefly, maybe to uh, apply that to Ayuni, the film, um, the documentary about uh, Father Paolo and uh, Basil Safadi, because we also had Yasmin Fedda as a speaker on the previous episode of the podcast and she's a filmmaker. So why did you want to, um, yeah, talk about Ayuni in a previous talk I, I heard. Why is it that important for you as a prison narrative? Um, well, first of all, I recommend everyone watch the film. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful one. I think it's extremely expressive and important in the way it makes the struggle for accountability around forced disappearance visible, not only as a political struggle, which it definitely is, but also as an effective transformation, right, for the, peoples who, mm -hmm. the people who've been impacted by forced disappearance and the communities where they find support, where they find care. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Ayuni is, um, I mean, it's about two disappearances in Syria, Basil Safati and Father Paolo, but it tracks the women who advocate for them, especially Basil's wife and then widow and Father Paolo's sister. Um, and there's, I think there's a very good reason to talk about this film, making the traces of the disappeared visible, right? That in itself is an act of resistance against the, for the forces that were trying to annihilate them and others without a trace. But um, in the film, my attention really stayed with the women, right? And how they learn to live with these absences and these enduring really searing uncertainties that forced disappearance produces, right? It sort of transforms them as individuals. They have to cohabitate with a pain that has no resolution in sight for now, right? But it also shows how the, the women are forging communities of activism, care and nurturing. And it was just a profoundly dignified expression of what it means for Syrian activists to choose, right? And these are circumstances that nobody would ever freely choose. But in these impossible circumstances, they're fighting to even see the corpse of a loved one who committed no crime. But they're choosing to make this pain that they're experiencing a political tool. And I see this really as continuing revolutionary practice, right? The film roots its narrative in the 2011 revolution. And it's so clear that the women can't stop fighting, right? That their pain won't end until they have accountability for their loved ones, which is the same thing really, I think, as saying that the pain and the fight will continue until justice is achieved. And that's not just for these individuals, right? It's, a, it's really a, a question for Syrians about justice in Syria right? and what that would mean for collective healing. That was so touching, Anne-Marie. Thanks a lot. It's wonderful how you bring to bear the ongoing resistance, which is a central element of prison narratives that, of course, also links up to justice efforts. We look forward to reading more about your research outcomes. Thanks a lot. That's really kind. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And thanks for all the work you're doing. This interview was right up to your ally, wasn't it, Brigitte? Yeah, very much so. It relates, of course, strongly to my own research on the potential of Syrian artistic practices to open up the justice imagination. And um, Anne-Marie spoke very, I think, passionately and impressively about the link between prison narratives 
and ongoing resistance and how that feeds into justice efforts. And that was very inspiring. Yes, it was. And next time we are going to explore one of the key components of that ongoing resistance, victims agency. We're talking uh, to Yasmin Al-Mish'an, uh, Riyad Avlar, Hiba Al-Hamid, and Bassam Mahmoud about justice initiatives that are meaningful to victims and survivors. Yes, and I'm really looking forward to these different conversations as well, because I think they're also very timely when we look into the issue of the study on the mechanism for the forcibly disappeared and the missing. These conversations are really key to address these, um, these efforts of victims groups and also, of course, their agency. But for now, I would like to thank our guest, Samara Said, for the voiceover and our sound engineer, Kato De Lange. Thank you to our listeners and stay tuned. This was Justice Visions. To re-listen to this episode or to browse our archive, visit our website, justicevisions.org or subscribe now via Spotify or Apple Music. Justice Visions is made possible through generous funding of the European Research Council.